Look, look, it's Brad. He came back. <laughs> As I could tell this morning, here, things were deteriorating, the, so it's a yeah, good thing that I good here, came back. No, that, that one's... Uh, are yeah, you saying I'm nice short? And are you saying I'm short? <laughs> it's a little shorter, and I'm so tall. <clears throat> yeah, it's good to have you back, man. It's good, it, it's good to be back, yeah. Yeah, your vacation go well? Uh, n- n- well, no, it was, uh, you know what? I might stand. This is, I, is I that need too a, high? I need a stool to, to get, uh, <laughs> get I, I don't want to embarrass myself, uh, in front of, there we go. There we go. Yeah. I think I can get up on this. One. Okay. I think I can get up on this one. Okay. Well, good for you. There we go. <laughs> yeah. It's hard being It, it keeps you humble. Yeah. <laughs> it is good to be back, though. We certainly missed everyone here, and and it was uh, I think we missed three Sundays. Uh, so it is very good, very good to see your faces again and see that you're all here. And uh, it's still called commissioned. I was concerned that it was going to be called. What was your favorite name again? Slurp. Well, Slurp. Slurp. Yeah, that's um, right. But then girded loins was the other. Oh idea. yeah, that yeah. Go for that. So it's still commissioned, and it's and and that's partly you know we even heard that uh, commissioned our our uh, commitment to uh, keeping missions in front of you all, and it's good to hear from Keto and his plans. So grateful that we can be a little part of your life here as you get ready to go back to to the Philippines, you and your family. So it's wonderful, very exciting. Excellent. Well, I'm sure at some point it's going to come out all the different things of your trip and. Uh just highlights of, but is there one or two that you'd like to share? Yeah, for those who don't know, uh, I was uh, asked to lead the uh, a, n- a new aspect of our training at TMS to lead uh, uh, a regular trip to Turkey and Greece uh, to study some of the sites where our New Testament is based, uh, particularly the, the writings of the Apostle Paul and his missionary travels, as well as a little bit with the Apostle John, a little bit with Peter as well when you consider where Peter, uh, or to the, those to whom Peter wrote in his letters as well. Uh, so this was my first time, and, and the trip was to, to lead a group of 28 people through those sites, spend two very full weeks of uh, daily study in, in the different sites, travel a very long distance, um, and cover everything that we could in that amount of time. Probably, though, the I would say the highlight was something that happened at the very beginning, or actually right before the trip started. I, Heather and I, we both were able to go, and I'm so very grateful that Heather could come with me. Uh, we left a few days early for me to be part of a conference in Turkey. I had never ministered before, and Turkey had no idea what the church was like in, in Turkey. And so I had an opportunity to uh, preach in a church that is... Uh, on the Black Sea, so the northern coast of Turkey in the area of Pontus, if, if you remember that biblical name, the name of the Roman province that's right to the, on the north coast of Turkey, uh, in a city called Samsun. And uh, what was a highlight about that was getting to meet believers there uh, and had a really good time with them. But one in particular, one believer stood out to me, a young Afghani uh, Man, he probably was in his early 20s. I didn't ask specifically what his age was, but young, young guy. And uh, I was able to to uh, talk with him for a while about his testimony and why he ended up in Turkey. Uh, well, and he he shared that when he was in Afghanistan, 
as he read the the Quran, he just knew that something wasn't right with it. And that led him on to a, a search on the internet to learn more about the Bible, the Old and New Testaments. And as he began to read, the Lord saved him through the reading of his word. Now, coming to to know Christ and and to confess him as Lord and Savior uh, was essentially a death sentence for him. And so once his family knew about it, uh, they said, look, you either have to recant or we're going to have to stone you. And uh, they gave him some time to recant, and and he refused. And uh, his mother then came to him and said, look, you have one opportunity. You have to leave Afghanistan. Uh, or we'll have to do this. And so he he left. He left everything behind. And for those who live in countries like Iran, Afghanistan, and so on, they they can get to Turkey. So that is a place of migration. And so he ended up in Turkey, and he got connected with the church that's there. And uh, he said, you know, I I left all my family behind. They're they're not believers. He hasn't talked with his dad ever since that happened uh, years ago. I think he immigrated there about three years ago. And uh, he says, but this church now is my family, and he's got an, uh, an outreach to the Afghani community there in Turkey. That, to me, was just an amazing moment to meet someone like that and, and to see, uh, you know, that's the cost of discipleship, right, that Jesus talks about. Uh, and for us here in North America, in the West, we grow up in these countries where, yeah, it's no problem you know, just profess Jesus as Lord, and you might face some some uh, discomfort from your family, but you have protection from, even from the government. Whereas there, that's not the case, and so he he had to abandon his whole family, and that was a highlight for me. Well, yeah, I'm sure that's a yeah to meet a guy who sacrificed that much for Christ and the persecution. Um, well, it's good to have you back. And we uh, had some questions come in for us today. Thank you for those of you who submitted questions. And, uh, boy, when I mentioned about the possibility of you talking about farm life, um, boy, did the questions start coming in. Well, uh, I had my slides ready. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, and, I, you know, sometime I can show those if there's time. Yeah, not today. Okay. But, yeah, I'll let you know when we have time for that. But no, definitely not today. No. Well, some of the questions that came in uh, with living in this culture and this ungodly world that we're in. I think that's a challenge that we find. Our, um, the world around us is becoming more and more uh, against Christianity, against what Christ says. So some questions had to do with that. So I wanted to start with this one here. How are we as believers to respond to someone from the LGBTQ plus who insists we call them by a different gender name or pronoun? Um, and I'm sure you, you know what this question's all about. Um, people have the freedom to use whatever pronoun it seems like or declare their own pronouns. Um, so how do we respond to that if they insist, and maybe it's even a family member who insists that? Uh, well, how are we to respond to something like that? Yeah, that's a good question, and everyone needs to think through that and be ready for that when that comes, whether that's in, the term, in, in terms of a family situation or at work or, or in school, what have you. And my response to that would be very straightforward, that um, the issue of genders is an issue of reality. And when someone who is a male is asking you to call them 
as a, or to identify them as a female, that is an obstruction of reality. That is a, that is, uh, that is contrary to truth. And, and we as those who love the truth, uh, must never speak lies, even just to please people. We cannot be man pleasers. And so the issue or the answer to that question is simply, no, we don't do that. Uh, if, if a person came up to us and said, you know, refer to me and treat me as a horse, uh, we would not do that. Uh, we would refuse uh, in the same way and in, in this way as well, because it is, a, it is an issue of reality, God's reality. Reality is how God defines it. And by falling into this pressure that we start to use genders just to please people is to go against who we are as people of the truth. Now, how do we work practically in that situation? And, and uh, we must stand firm for the truth. Uh, we would refuse to go according to uh, that person's desire for us to, to reject reality. Uh, but there are some other things that we can do using uh, some other way of referring to that person, uh, whereas we, we don't need to wear it on the sleeve in terms of just constantly calling that person by what they are when that person already rejects that. It's like throwing pearls to the swine. So we can use other things uh, that would not be an obstruction or a rejection of reality and that would allow us to refer to that person. So that's the counsel that I would give. Don't fall into the trap. Don't, don't uh, be pressured to fear men uh, or women. Uh, state the truth, but in, in cases where you're in a work situation and, and you have to refer to that person, find other ways to refer, uh, even if it's person A, person B. But... But here's the thing. We, we are being pushed right now in the, the whole cultural situation to, to reject reality on so many different levels. And there are those Christians out there who say, well, we need to be winsome. We need to be nuanced. We need to be loving. But true love never comes at a sacrifice of the truth. That just can never be possible. If we don't have the truth, there is no true love. So we have to be firm for the truth as well as love, and that just means we've got to find the way uh, to, uh, to refer to people in ways that we can survive uh, in that context, but without obscuring the truth. And we have to be creative, and, and that's what it means. But if it means in the end that they still require us to, uh, to, to you know, come before a panel and say, I will refer to so-and-so as a male, even though so-and-so is a female, we just refuse to bend. And if we lose our jobs, I mean, think of that Afghani man. He was willing to, to be stoned uh, by his own family for the sake of Christ. Losing a job is painful. Uh, but Jesus says in the, the Beatitudes, blessed are you when those kinds of things happen. Yeah, and... Uh... You're absolutely right. We've got to speak truth. I mean, when we see people who want to go by a, a pronoun opposite of their real biological gender, they are deceived by, this, by sin is what's happening to them. By going along with that deception, we are encouraging something that's a lie and encouraging them deeper in that deception. And that's not our role, uh, as Brad said. Our role is to speak truth to them in a loving way. And like you said, find another 
something else to call my coworker, something, but, uh, but you can't encourage. Because when hopefully that person comes to the knowledge of the truth, that person does come to the realization that this was wrong, they don't, you don't want them to come to you and say, you encouraged that deception I was under. How could, you know, I continued in that, and you encouraged that by calling me my preferred pronoun. So we, wanna, we can't be partner with that. We stand for the truth. So, all right, so that's an important one. Um, another related question, how am I supposed to love my enemies? Uh, I know I'm supposed to love my enemies, but how can I when they flaunt their evil immorality, like transgenderism? And try to force me to accept it, accept it all. So how do I show love to someone who flaunts uh, an, uh, an immoral lifestyle, an immoral thinking? Yeah, again, I would say it has to begin with the truth. And so the way to love someone who is in that situation and is flaunting error, blasphemy, uh, and so on and so forth, immorality, uh, is, is to... First of all, communicate the truth to them. Uh, you are not loving someone simply by appeasing them or being friendly to someone who is, who is uh, lost in their sin. So it begins with speaking the truth to them, telling them the gospel, not fearing their response, not fearing being called narrow-minded, a bigot, et cetera, et cetera. Those are all the, you know, those terms are very abundant these days to refer to anyone who disagrees with another person. But it begins with speaking the truth. Uh, Speak the truth to them in the hopes that they may be saved. Think of 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 to 25. Do not be quarrelsome with them, uh, as, as Paul says, but teach them and do so with the hope that God may grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. Secondly, pray for them. That, that is loving, and I think it was Spurgeon who said, there's nothing more loving that a person can do than to pray for, for me. Spurgeon said that. So pray for them. Uh, the, the deception that they're in is no different than the deception that a very moral person is in. It still requires supernatural regeneration. And so you, you must look to the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord, so you, you pray for them. Uh, that is very, very important. Um, third is, is remember that if it were, was not for the grace of God in your own life, you'd be lost in your sins as well. Uh, you know, think at, if, if you think at it and, and realize even now where you're at in the Christian life, and you see still you're dealing with these sins in your own life, you're working at mortifying them, every so often you'll look at that and say, that is so atrocious. How can this be? And I've been a believer for decades already. Now, just think, without that sanctifying power of the Spirit and the Word at work in your life, where you would be apart from regeneration. So realize, that could very easily be me. Every so often I'll think of that and think, well, you know what? Um, if the Lord had not saved me, I'd, I'd, I'd be, you know, in skid row as well. Uh, it's it, it, it's all within our lost uh, potential. Uh, so remember that, be humbled by that, realize salvation is of the Lord. And, and so it doesn't require from us some kind of um, hostility in response. It doesn't require from us some kind of uh, very aggressive reaction. 
in, in terms of that person's state. We pray for them. We speak the truth to them. But there is another element to it, and that is, uh, you know, the, it, it, it must pain us. It, it must stir us when, when the, the holiness of our God and the truthfulness of our God is demeaned and blasphemed. You think of Paul uh, walking into Athens and seeing all the idolatry and the twistedness of the philosophers of Athens, Acts 17. And what bothered Paul so much was that this was the height, this was supposed to be the height of human intellectual ability, and they were so lost. And Luke records that he was provoked in his spirit at what he saw. We must be provoked. Uh, let us not be become comfortable with that kind of immorality. That kind of provocation that that immorality causes should lead us to what Paul did preached, and it should also leave us, uh, lead us to uh, a distaste. It should lead us to a discomfort uh, that, that we never grow comfortable in seeing that kind of stuff and hearing that kind of stuff and reading about that kind of stuff going on. It, it should always provoke us, provoke us to preach, provoke us to pray, uh, provoke us to proclaim, and in other cases, many cases, provoke us to flee from that kind of immorality. Uh, but it, we cannot take uh, any kind of violence into our own hands. We, we cannot force somebody to believe. Uh, we, we are limited. Maybe one more thing I would add to that, and, th- and that's another P, I guess. I'm starting to think in terms of P's here, but that would be to protect. Uh, so when you... When there is that kind of immorality taking place, whether it's in a school, for example, uh, whether it's in the workplace, so we do what we can to protect others from that influence. Uh, we Again, we cannot be ambivalent to it. Yeah, thank you, Brad. I think those are all absolutely critical. I'll add one more to that. Is, is it a P? You've got to start with a P. Wow. Think, think through it. <laughs> Trivia. <laughs> I can't come up with a P right now. But... Um, you know, in demonstrating love, it's demonstrating love is not going along or overlooking that sin. But you can show acts of love. Help them if it's a coworker. Help them with whatever project they're on. You can demonstrate love, and it's not that okay that they're, you know, they're immoral. They don't know the Lord. Well, how can you demonstrate love in a way other than any way promoting or encouraging that lifestyle? But win them over to Christ by showing them through an act of love, giving them a ride home or whatever, but uh, continue to speak truth to them. But let them see truth with demonstrations of uh, service and kindness to them as well. All right, here comes another question here. Profanity. So we're getting off that, but to profanity. It seems to be more commonplace in the world each year. What makes swearing so attractive to our culture? And what biblical principles should Christians mention when asked why we don't swear? All right. Well, I was thinking through this this morning. I was up at 5 because of the uh, time change that I'm, I'm going through. So I was up a little bit uh, earlier than normal. And I saw that question, and, and I went back to some of the material that, that I'd gone through and I, in Men of the Word in preparation for the series on Proverbs. Proverbs speaks much about the use of the tongue. And so, in response to that question, I came up with nine principles about uh, uh, related to why 
profanity and vulgar language is particularly inappropriate for the believer. And I thought I'd, I'd spend a little bit of time on this and give some specifics on this because this is becoming a, a common thing uh, on a number of levels. First of all, you see it in, the, the, this, the, in, in some of the Reformed movement, uh, the young, restless, and reformed, it, it, it kind of became culturally hip to become to, to be reformed. And, and you have a branch of this movement that uh, thought that it was masculine to use profanity. And so on, on, on that side of things, what, what, what motivated that was that in the culture, masculinity was, was being criticized, undermined, attacked, the culture was trying to make men passive, weak. Uh, men needed to be followers. Men needed to shut up. Those kinds of things. And so there was an element within evangelicalism that basically said, "Hey, look, we got to we got to salvage masculinity, manhood." And for them, defining manhood simply became do the opposite of what the culture says, and that's biblical manhood, uh, which is it's not. And, and so you have those within evangelicalism saying, well, to be a man, you have to cuss, you have to drink hard liquor, et cetera, et cetera. That's what it means to be a man today. You have to break all those taboos and so on and so forth. So we see that, uh, sadly, within social media. You see it within, you know, you've heard of this probably, the cussing pastors and so on. It becomes really hip to be on the edge and, and to use cursing language. From the from the female side of things, as, as you, you get into the feminization and, and so on, it has also become attractive. You, you, you see or you read or you hear a lot of profanity now coming from women as well, which a few generations ago would have been utterly unthinkable. But now that's, that's all part and parcel of where the culture is going. So how do we as Christians respond to that? Let me give you nine reasons why vulgarity... Uh, profane language is, is not part of the Christian life. Number one, uh, profanity can be blasphemous. Whenever it, it involves the name of God, it usually involves ascribing something to God, uh, describing God in a certain way that is contrary to who God is. So think to, to Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, where it says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now, what is, what is that commandment communicating? That commandment is not just saying specifically, you know, you cannot uh, just use God's name, you know, frivolously. Rather, when it says you cannot take the name of the Lord your God in vain, it's saying you cannot describe God in a way that is inadequate or improper. And in much of cursing language, God's name is involved and it is attributing to him things that aren't biblical and aren't correct. It, it, it is directly attributing to him things that are blasphemous. So that's reason number one. Uh, this vulgarity can be blasphemous. Number two, uh, often cursing and, and vulgar language is a rebellion against God's sovereignty. And so you stub your toe and, and many people want to cuss. Think of that. So you want to cuss against your, your stubbed toe. Well, in the providence of God, that's what God has ordained to come about. And James chapter 1, verses 2 to 3 says, consider it all joy whenever you face trials. So the cussing in response to a bad circumstance, a car accident, 
or stubbing your toe is actually a rebellion in that moment against the sovereignty of God. Rather than saying God did this for a reason, you have this reaction against God's sovereignty. Number three, often cussing and, and, and this cursing language degrades those made in God's image. So, so much of the cussing and, and so on is, is uh, you know, against an enemy, somebody who has cut you off in the freeway and so on and so forth. And it often is utterly degrading against a person who has been made in the image of God. Uh, James chapter 3 says, says that in verses 9 and 10. You can, I won't read it now, but uh, how, can, how can we use curses against those who've been created in, in God's image? Number four, some uh, cursing language actually commands immoral behavior. I won't go farther on that one, but just to say that often uh, people just say, well, it's just, a, it's just a reaction. But that cursing language is commanding immoral behavior and you cannot separate the command to commit immoral behavior from the committing of immoral behavior. So you become complicit in that, even though it, oh, I didn't intend it literally. You still commanded it. And how can light dwell with darkness in that sense? Number five, uh, cursing and foul language often is intended to invite judgment on personal enemies. Now, yes, we do find imprecatory prayers in the scriptures. But the imprecatory prayer is never because somebody just personally offended me. David was personally offended, and so he gave an imprecatory psalm. No, the problem is with cursing and so on is that the invitation of judgment on an enemy is done because someone offended my pride. And that is utterly different than the kind of imprecations that you have in the Psalter, for example, where God's glory is at stake, where God's promises are at stake, and where the people of God are being, uh, are being opposed. Uh, number six, this kind of foul language develops careless speech habits. Uh, and this is something that I, I'll, I'll think about regularly, is that when I do stub my toe, what am I going to say? And, and one of my fears that keeps me wanting to pursue sanctification is that, you know, if I was ever in a car accident, if I ever stubbed my toe, uh, if something disastrous happened to me, that no one around me, especially my family, would hear me utter some kind of curse. And letting in these, these small curses here and there becomes a pattern of speech and then right on cue, it's a knee-jerk reaction. You just develop that as a way of, of, of responding without thought, and that's dangerous. Number seven, it fails to edify. Ephesians 4.29 uh, says, Let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth, but only that which is edifying to others. And, and cursing and cussing and whatnot all is just uh, contrary to edification. Number eight, it reveals hypocrisy. And this is one of the things that for our kids, we've told them as, you know, as they are exposed to this at schools and so on. Look, you want to make sure your vocabulary is always the same in church contexts as it is in secular contexts. There should be no difference. Our, our vocabulary should be exactly the same. Otherwise, if we have a different vocabulary, it's, it's, that's the essence of, um, uh, of hypocrisy. And then number nine, it damages the testimony. Uh, remember what Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, verse 12. Uh, he said, let not 
anyone look down on you because of your youth, but set an example in faith and in love and in conduct and in speech. Set the example. And it's by setting the example that you maintain a good testimony. So I say all that because today it's, I'm just concerned you see this proliferation among Christians of a lot of vulgar language and, and this movement even within reform circles that this is cool. This is pushing against the taboos. This is what it means to be manly. And that simply does not jive with Scripture. Well, I tell you, it's, it's good to have you back, Brad. Obviously, you've been missing uh, the opportunity to preach and be with our group and uh, to have nine, uh, nine points on that <laughs> one. Right. Shows, but uh, uh, it's yeah. it's it's twelve thirty. That clock's wrong, so we finished on time. <laughs> yeah. But I am looking forward to next next Sunday. We will uh, get into that last benediction in First Thessalonians, which to me is a very very wonderful encouragement. Perhaps the best in all of First Thessalonians. We'll look at that next Sunday. Absolutely, I know everyone will be looking forward to that. As uh, as we've talked, I'll be gone for the month of June visiting our missionaries, different uh, conferences we have for our missionaries. So I'll be out of the country for about a month. And I'm going to leave it in your hands here, Brad. We'll, we'll write the ship when you're gone. So <laughs> Appreciate that. <laughs> Got to come up with some Canadian name for a group. I don't know. Uh, what will be the Mounties or something? The Canucks. Yeah. The Canucks. or Yeah. Maybe so. Yeah. Well, thanks again. Uh, could you close us in prayer for today, Brad? Sure. Father, it was good to be together again this morning and to sing together, to pray together, and uh, to hear reports of your hand at work in the lives of others, and uh, even to consider these questions. And we thank you for your providence, which leads us in various directions, uh, in some cases takes us apart for a time, in other cases for a little bit longer, as in the case of the Nardones, as well as uh, Keto and his family. But we're so very thankful that we have been united in Christ and uh, that these relationships are now forever and uh, we enjoy what the world so desperately needs, uh, the sense of forgiveness, the sense of peace, the sense of uh, relationships and belonging. And so we pray that as even as we've read these questions and we consider the state of the world around us, that you would make us lights in a very dark world, even this next week as we are apart from one another. But we do pray that you'd bring us back again next Sunday and to enjoy your wonderful grace to us on the Lord's Day. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.